curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening. Welcome along to the Saturday edition of the Weekend Variety Wireless, second to last for 2018, second to last for probably ever. I'll still throw the probably in. All right. Yeah, it's sad, but I'm telling you uh, this just by way of courtesy, not whining. Okay, coming up later on this evening, a couple of... Uh, replays, but they're apt, especially apt. December the 7th, yesterday, uh, but December the 8th, our time in 1941. Pearl Harbor. You don't have to say the battle of or the attack on, you just have to say the place, don't you? A friend and colleague uh, offered me a few years ago a cassette with his father regaling being at being on the West Virginia when the attack happened. It's a harrowing thing to hear, and he's only done this once. He's dead now, it was recorded in 1988, and Scott Kelly, thank you so much for offering this first-person eyewitness account of the attack on Pearl Harbor from a sailor aboard one of the ships. On this anniversary, the 77th, we'll be playing that after 10 o'clock. If you haven't heard it before, do listen. Press record, damn it. It's quite a special thing. We delve into the world of bizarre lyrics after 11 o'clock with Grant Smithies. Max Cryer and the usuals. Oh, and a heads up for something happening tomorrow night, Ayan Hersi Ali. She was going to speak in New Zealand, but uh, she's an apostate from Islam and uh, is outspoken against political Islam, put it that way, Islamism. And she has to travel the world with the security detail. The death threats are real. Colleagues of hers have been murdered, stabbed in the chest with a note on it saying, you're next. Ayan uh, Hersi Ali, however, has not stopped speaking out. And in my books, that's bloody brave. Tomorrow night, you'll hear from her. If little girls of seven, eight years old cannot be protected by British law, then you start to wonder what exactly is racist. If little, the genitals of little white girls were being cut off, there would be enormous outrage. Tomorrow night. Ayan Hirsi Ali. Science this hour and coming up after the commercial break. He was quite a good get, I reckon, if I do say so myself. You ring up JPL and NASA and say, I want to speak to someone uh, in charge of the Mars rover missions. And we found him. He ended up at the end of the telephone at his desk to tell us all about it. And this in light of little opportunity, that rover more than... It's 14 years. It was supposed to only last for about six months. 14 years the damn thing kept going. They haven't heard from it this year, and it's not looking good. The story of the Mars Rovers with the Mars Rover director, Bill Nelson, after the break. Good evening. Life, the universe, and everything in between. 
Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Systems engineer, mission manager, the team chief of the Mars Exploration Rover Project. It's been an outrageous success. Bill Nelson, man, you must be proud of how Little Spirit and Rover have done over these years on Mars. I am extremely. It's, it's like watching your kids grow up. It is seeing them do far more than you ever expected. It has been just really wonderful. When the rover delivery capsules, the first one is descending into the atmosphere, I suppose you're all biting your fingernails, you're wondering is this going to, it's the most dangerous part of the project, getting the thing on the surface of Mars. Tell us what it was like receiving the signals, just waiting for and then hearing that it had landed successfully. It was a roller coaster. We learned of a storm on Mars which expands the size of the atmosphere, heats it up. And so we had to reprogram things at the very last minute, and anything done at the last minute is subject to error. And then you don't know if the parachute's going to work. Will the back shell slow it down properly? Will the heat shield work? You go from worry to fear to absolute panic. You've got the anticipation. Is it going to work? And, of course, the signals that come back never come back on time. And so you're, you're saying, well, we're going to hear from it in five, four, et cetera. And, you know, now it's, well, six seconds, eight seconds beyond when you were expecting. And eventually you hear something. And the relief is just palpable. And then we got the pictures back. And they are spectacular. You see the, you know, the, the rover itself is in great shape, but you see the, the hills and the, or in the case of opportunity, the crater, the relief is just amazing. And the room explodes. I mean, it is like, it's equivalent, I suppose, to, to watching your favorite team and they've been the underdog and they're in the fight of their life to win the championship and that one last kick or that one throw of the ball and you wait and suddenly you make it. It's that kind of feeling. And everybody stood up and cheered. It was, it was fabulous. It was one of the best experiences of my life. Electronic tone sent from the rover indicates that the rover has landed base pedal down, which means right side up. The sense of relief, the tears. Oh, absolutely. We are heavily invested in this. These are our babies. We're hoping and praying that they're going to work just right. And we know 50, 100 ways that things can go wrong. And we've done everything we can. And we worry everything is not enough. Will they make it? And so when they do, oh, uh, the, like I say, the relief, the exhilaration, You've done it. It's, it is just fabulous. You would have been fully aware, too, of the success rate of all attempts to land some hard, hardware or set something in orbit around Mars. It, it's not a high percentage, is it? No, it's only about one in three. It is, it is hard getting to Mars, and the success rate is not good. It's been really tough, and Mars has, has defeated a lot of missions. To be called a success... What was the minimum time for them to function properly? 
We had about a dozen different things that constituted success, and one of them was surviving for the duration of the prime mission, which was 90 sols, or about 92 days. There was real concern that the dust raining down on the solar rays would run us out of power, and of course, we landed in the fall, so we're coming into the Martian winter when things are going to be more difficult. We're, we're drawing more heater energy, and the sun is getting lower in the sky. So there was real concern it would not survive through the winter. We had to make it through those first three months. That was success. And while spirits finally seems as though it's given up the ghost, opportunity is still going today. This is, it's more than 10 years, isn't it? Has it surprised you? how long they've survived? Uh, Yes and no, or it has surprised me that we have survived as long as we have. There's so many things that could go wrong, but by the same token, we designed these things for a huge number of events that may never happen. And in fact, if they don't happen, that design has the margin that we can then use to live longer. And that's kind of what's happened to us. Uh, We built an exceptionally strong rover so that it could handle anything. And that margin is now allowing us to do things much longer than anybody ever expected. But we've also had a lot of help from Mother Nature. Mars rains dust down on us continuously. And every so often, we get a dust devil or a wind eddy that blows some of that dust off the array. And it's like we have a whole new mission starting over again. What distances have Spirit and Opportunity collectively traveled since they've been on Mars? Spirit traveled 7.7 kilometers before she hit her final resting point. Opportunity has just clicked over 34.2 kilometers. Wow. How fast can they go? I suppose it's very, very gently, gently catchy monkey, but how fast do they go? A very slow walk, it's about one meter per minute, and that's at our top rate. So pedal to the metal, one meter a minute. If we use some of our autonomous navigation features, we have to drive a little bit and then sit and think for a while. So the effective rate is somewhere between half and and a quarter of a meter a minute. Are there separate teams for opportunity and spirit? Uh, because I'd imagine, you know, after such a long time, you'd become so attached to one and th- they would almost have different characters or maybe a feeling of competition between the teams? Oh, especially at first. When the two rovers both started driving, there was a lot of sibling rivalry between the two teams. Who could drive the furthest in a Sol? Who could rack up the longest odometry? But as the missions kind of diverged in what they were trying to do, uh, that rivalry subsided. And our decision was also that we should probably cross-train our teams to keep the processes from drifting too far between the two rovers. Uh So we started moving people from one rover to the other to give them some experience on both. I think that's been very beneficial to us, but it's also damped down a lot of the rivalry. And, of course, as the missions diverged and the equipment has diverged, each of these rovers has developed its own personality. And you have to remember, you know, which rover is the one with this problem or that problem or which one uses this kind of technique. It's given them, as I say, kind of their own personality. And it's like having, I don't know, having pets that you've trained and one of them could do this and another one does that. 
but they become very near and dear to our hearts. And also, I think we project a lot of our hopes and fears onto them as well. They've had di- very different fortunes, haven't they? It's like opportunity has been the blessed one and spirit's been the little machine that could in the face of adversity. Yeah, spirit's kind of been our problem child. She was the first to the planet, so she's kind of like the firstborn. And she's been kind of our pathfinder. Because she was first, she continues to do new things first. And then opportunity benefits from that experience, but opportunity also has just seemed to have been a little less problem-oriented. So consequently, yeah, if we're going to have a problem, it's probably spirit. And are they exactly the same? Mechanically, they're very similar. There were some minor electrical differences, some last-minute changes that didn't make it for spirit, but in the extra three weeks were able to be put on opportunity. Since then, however, they've lived very different lives. Uh, spirit, for example, has the, the frozen right front wheel, whereas Opportunity's right front wheel is still turning, won't steer, but it's still turning. And Opportunity's got the stuck-on heater with our robotic arm, which requires us to use a technique that shuts everything down that we call deep sleep, which we've never had to use on Spirit. Why do you have to put it to a deep sleep? The heater that's stuck on draws so much power that it would rapidly run us out of energy. And so we turn everything off except a very small amount of vital electronics. So the the computer is off, the communication systems are off, everything. It's like you unplug everything. But it turns out that we've got one little, little tiny circuit on there that keeps going and has the ability to kind of plug things back in when the sun rises the following morning. And because of that, by turning everything off, we also turn off this stuck-on heater and save all this energy. And then come morning, we kind of plug back in and fire things back up again. Well, the heater comes on as well, but it also has an inline thermostat that turns it off during the warmer part of the day. So deep sleep keeps us from expending an awful lot of unnecessary energy overnight and the thermostat turns it off during the day, and that allowed us to continue the mission. What have been some of the more worrying times, emotional times, since their, both their landings on Mars? We've had a number of them. We had, uh, for example, with uh, Opportunity, we were trucking across this plane, and it is, it is like a sea of sand dunes. If you've ever been in kind of a choppy sea, imagine that just frozen and turned to sand. So they're they're just dune after dune after dune. And we're trucking along, driving up and over and up and over all these dunes. No problem. And we come across a dune that looks exactly like all the other dunes, only this time we don't go up and over it. We plow into it. And we get stuck. And we were stuck there for about two months trying to get ourselves back out of it. And there was real concern that, you know, we're not going to get out of it. Well... The same thing happened to us a couple of times on Spirit with a final time happening where we indeed did not get out of it and and she was lost. And believe me, that put quite a pall over the team. Mm. Like you say, you get attached to these things like they're critters. It's like pulling the plug on a loved one a bit. It very much is. I guess you anthropomorphize. They're like our kids. 
I suppose in the back of your mind, you think about, well, if this thing dies, it could be my job security. But more, it's somebody or, you know, almost as if somebody that you have worked with daily for several years and suddenly you're losing them. It's that kind of emotion that goes with them. We were fortunate in the case of Spirit that this was not an unanticipated event. So we kind of had some time to get used to the idea that we might indeed lose Spirit over the winter. And so when it did come to pass, when we were unable to get her back, it was not as shocking as it might have been. But I can't say it was any less sad. We're speaking with Bill Nelson, the team leader of one of the most outrageously successful and most far-flung of scientific experiments at setting a little rover onto Mars. Okay, Bill, curiosity. How does it, how does it differ from the to, uh, spirit and opportunity? Well, for one thing, it's huge. Our rovers have been described not too inaccurately as uh, coffee tables with uh, plywood on top. They are a little bit higher than a typical coffee table would be, probably not quite as high as a desk. And imagine a sheet or two of plywood on it representing the solar arrays, and you'd have a rough idea of what these things are like. They're basically about two meters by two meters, so that's about how much plywood you'd need. The Curiosity rover is between three and four times larger. It's been described as the size of a Mini Cooper. It is also powered by atomic energy. It's got uh, what we call RTGs or radiothermal generators. And so it's not limited to merely daytime operation, although prudence suggests that they probably won't do nighttime operations very frequently. It also means they don't have to worry about this rain of dust that is such a concern for us. The rover itself uh, stands, oh, probably around shoulder height or so high, as opposed to uh, not quite waist level for ours. And it's got a mast on it that holds the panoramic camera that stands three meters high. So it's a, it's a much, much larger machine, but it's also uh, a far more robust machine to handle that mass. We have four instruments on our robotic arm. They have nine. They are equipped with more cameras and are altogether a more capable machine than we are. What are your thoughts on manned missions to Mars? Some people have put their hand up for a one-way mission, but I'm just wondering, do you think technology might outpace the technological problems of, of sending humans to Mars, if you know what I mean? Where by sending a machine, it would be hard to tell the difference. I think that's exactly right. I think manned exploration has its place. We are seeing huge advances in robotics, in, in the, the ability of the software to control it, in the capability of the hardware, in the versatility of the designs. I believe we'll also have the ability to image areas on Mars in such detail that we can create a virtual Mars here on Earth of a fidelity so that not only can ordinary people go in to, say, a facility, a museum or something, and feel like they're standing on Mars, but also you can use this technology so that your astronauts can train and they'll actually see and hear and feel what they're going to experience when they get to Mars. And you can have your scientists go into these facilities and actually pick up virtual rocks and examine them and hit things with their virtual 
little geologist's hammer and actually do science with it. Now, there's also going to be some limitations to this. You can't do things where you can't see, for example. But I think that kind of technology, that ability to put yourself in a virtual scene, will do a lot to help us understand Mars or any other place that we want to go. I also believe our robotic explorers will become far more capable, both in their ability to move about the environment, their ability to image, but also in their ability to, shall we say, think about the environment. They can become more self-directed. I don't really think that artificial intelligence is likely to be on the horizon all that soon. Some other people's thoughts to the contrary. But I do think that our robots can do an awful lot for us, and we're not going to have to risk human beings all that often. And when we do, it will be for the things that only they can do and that are vital enough to make it worthwhile putting them at some risk. Yeah, because we are hugely high-maintenance things, aren't we, to send into (laughs) a a place like space? Oh, absolutely. We are in many respects very fragile creatures, and space and planets like the moon, or moon's not a planet, but, you know, the moon, Mars, the moons of, of Jupiter and other places are all very hostile environments for us. Whenever I see these pictures of Mars from the rovers, I'm always compelled to imagine being on Mars myself and wandering over a dune. I bet everyone at JPL must feel that too. I find myself on Mars every day. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of in your mind's eye, but I get a, a daily report of the telemetry from the vehicle. And as I go through that, I kind of imagine myself standing next to it. You know, what's it feel like? Well, the temperatures today are this. The Mars atmosphere is very, very thin and very cold and very, very dry. For the most part, there's almost no wind. And when there is, it's this kind of thin feeling of of things moving but really no pressure behind it i kind of describe it it's it's like feeling the breath of ghosts i can i can walk around and i see my my footsteps in the in the dust and as i step there's these little puffs of almost smoke-like dust it's so fine and i think a lot of our team does something like that it kind of gives you what we call situational awareness Mm. but It's also kind of fun. We've long suspected that Mars at one time had water, but the rovers have actually provided the proof. Our very first day when we encountered our first rock and actually ground into it, it had what was called an indurated crust, which was showing that at least there had been dew on Mars that had dissolved a little bit of the surface and then it had recrystallized harder than it had been. Later on, we discovered evidence that there must have been ponds and then lakes. And now we're to the point of seeing that there has been running water and rivers and possibly seas on Mars. We're putting together a more regional history of this water. We're also putting together the chemistry, how it has changed over time. And while we're not instrumented to do so, the background question that everybody wants to know Did life ever happen on Mars? 
And it's the stuff we're learning that will help illuminate that bigger question. We seem so optimistic, I think, even in the 30s, but right through the 60s and 70s regarding how far we were going to explore manned missions. Uh, we had sci-fi shows. There were moon bases. We were living on Mars and going to Jupiter. Even Arthur C. Clarke, he knew a thing or two, and he set a space odyssey, of course, in 2001. What, what didn't we know about space travel? Well, I think it was a combination of things. I, I think we still, at that point, really didn't understand the full difficulty of space. Even little subtle things can make a big difference in whether or not something's possible. And it's taken us a long time to learn what we know now. But I think, too, there was the ignorance, perhaps some of it willful, of politics and economics. I mean, it looks really cool to have a moon base, let's say. Uh, and you see these people working in their spacesuits around it. What are they doing up there? Yeah. Why? How does somebody make a profit from working on the moon? What would they really do when you consider the cost of moving materials to what is probably the big market, Earth? And how could that be done more cheaply than what's happening here on Earth? Are we going to put a science outpost on the moon? You know, we can hardly get the governments to fund science here on Earth. You know, how are they going to, how are we going to talk about the, spending billions and billions of dollars running a moon base. Yeah, there may be some, but I think they're likely to be tiny and temporary. Mission manager of the Mars Exploration Rover, Bill Nelson, thank you. Thank you very much, Graham. I've had a really great time with this, and hello to all your audience. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Grant, very good evening. Hi, Graham. Uh, it was nice to hear from Bill Nelson. It was recorded a while ago, but a fine, perfectly reasonable opportunity, I think, to hear him again, the head of the Opportunity and Spirit rover missions, yeah. which I reckon probably the most outrageously successful you could think maybe voyager but those two yeah. went beyond well beyond what was expected yeah yeah they're, they're basically a proof of you could actually drive something around remotely and control it the russians had done it on the moon yeah uh, with a lunar clod they had done that but that was the first time on mars and so they had these two little rovers they were just really an idea to see if it could work and not only did it work i mean it yeah. worked outrageously well. Yeah, it's supposed to last for, well, the success was six or nine months, something well, like that? Yeah, yeah. They, I think that they, the minimum time, the you know, the contract time was sort of three months operation. Of course, they went for over a decade, way over a decade. That's well over so, spec, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it, and, you know, one got stuck in the sand trap and the other got sort of basically done in by a, probably a big sandstorm. Yeah. You, the, the, they're still sort of li listening for sounds but yeah opportunity is the only one that might be alive but it's getting worse and worse yeah. every day isn't it when yeah yeah the, not yeah, the last time the last time i saw any news they were sort of basically sort of a pretty close to pulling the plug i think mm. on it because it uh, isn't it's been capable of talking and uh, or communicating if because uh, the weather's been better um but haven't heard anything so it could be it's just battery just died for being mm. uncharged for too long yeah after more than a decade there, um, no surprises. But they'll become iconic sites in the future, I think. Yeah, Bill I Gould. think so too. The, the very last conversation with Bill Nelson, 
he concurred. I'm I'm no astrophysicist, but I just think the idea of sending robots. The robots will get better and better and better and better so much more quickly than being able to send people to Mars will get better and better. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a great fan of hu- you know, sending humans to places like Mars. People haven't sort of really evaluated or aren't generally appreciative of the risks of doing that. Can you talk with radiation. Elon Musk about this, please? Because he's just well <laughs> well, I know, I know. I mean, I'm sure it sounds inspirational stuff, but, you know, yeah. the, the, the big issue is, is radiation on Mars. Of course, you're living on, a, on the surface of a planet which is... You know, incredibly hostile. You couldn't live on the surface. The cosmic rays would eventually sort of break up all your chromosomes and you'd end up in some other species in pretty quick order. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you'd be living in a hole in the ground. And mm. the same on on the moon, you know, you can't live, exist there. Only, what, 20 people or something like that have been outside the magnetic protection of the Earth's magnetic field, which protects us from a lot of the worst that the galaxy throws at us. But, you know, if you're sitting on Mars, there's no protection. Just going into a cave would be the best option. Oh, the idea of terraforming it and giving it an atmosphere, that'll protect it. <laughs> well, but it's, know, it's run talking... out of its... Its dynamo's dead, so yeah. it hasn't got a magnetic that, field That's right, good and, enough. and the solar wind will just keep blowing it away. That's where it's gone in the first place. So yeah. solar wind just blowing all your atoms into space. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm a great believer in artificial intelligence, robots, and so on to control things. Um, mm. They can make their own decisions on the spot. At the moment, they send signals back, and people sitting in a control room make those decisions. But I think that in the future, there'll be a lot more um, AI. Yeah. built into the machines that they can make their own decisions. And when you think about it, if you were on Mars in a spacesuit, you can't touch the soil. It's your spacesuit touching the soil. You can't breathe the air. You're away from Mars, essentially. Yeah. The counter possibly is the, the fact that, you know, during the last Apollo mission to the moon, they yeah. had a geologist, and he was able to pick out rocks that, you know, he knew were significant just because of his professional experience. Yeah. Whereas uh, sort of me stumbling around on Mars, picking up a rock, so I'll fill up my bag pretty quickly, but are they the vital ones, the ones that'll really crack the yeah. the uh, problems that you want to solve? But if you've got 3D high-def <laughs> vision yeah. there? Well, you know, we've moved on 50 years from that time. So, yeah. you know, what you can do now with a sort of a, a little scanner can tell you what the mineralogy roughly of a rock is, presumably, yeah. fairly quickly. Mm. All right. We shall see, probably. Um, a couple of web links up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage associated with what we're talking about. Spiralling supermassive black holes. When they merge, you get gravity waves. You get gravity waves. These sort of were predicted by Einstein in 1915. Now we have machines and scientific instruments that can detect these waves as they ripple through the Earth and actually distort space. So the Earth actually physically changes shape it, uh, uh, and they're, they're detectors detect that. So well, these are supermassive black holes. I might say there's a scale of black holes. You mm. can go from things the size of stars, which we call stellar mass black holes, and we'll probably talk about that later. These ones that the simulation is of are supermassive black holes. These are ones that are millions and millions of times the mass of a star in the middle of galaxies. And you end up with two of them orbiting each other because in the past those two galaxies, each with a supermassive black hole in the centre, have merged blended themselves into one and their black holes both migrated to the centre where they got involved in the sort of um, a, a capture, they orbiting mm-hmm. each other and gradually over a very long time those spiral down and will merge. Now we've never seen one. It's, it, we don't know what the likelihood of seeing one is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more black holes where, they, where they're this massive stars. We've seen those already, a dozen now, uh, but the, the supermassive ones are uh, 
uh, probably a lot rarer. So it could be, you know, you could wait a century before we'd see one of those mm. merge. But they, they want to understand the physics of what happens when these things will do that. And mm -hmm. that's really what the simulation's about. Okay. And the mission to Bennu, this is another one of these asteroids. A nice little video description of how it was done and what's up. Yeah, it's a nice little summary of the... Because uh, the NASA spacecraft is just... OSIRIS-REx is just uh, edit. It's not actually in orbit at this time around Bennu. Um, it's just come up, it's cruising along really close to it, basically keeping pace with it, uh, watching it going around and all that sort of stuff. But uh, it won't be till, uh, I think it's early January, that it'll actually formally get into a direct orbit. It'll What's wrong with just keeping pace with it, though? That would be handy. Oh, well, they want to do all sorts of things. By going to orbit around it, they can measure its mass and all sorts of extra things that oh. you can't do if you're just cruising along beside it, watching it. So there'll be action uh, after Christmas and into New Year. They'll be posting much better pictures. We'll be seeing every just about every grain on the surface of this nice. body. It'll be the most you know, perfectly mapped object Hunk of that of gravel. size ever. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. It's just like a big uh, gravel pit. Of course, when eventually they're going to grab some, a sample of it and bring it back to Earth mm. if all that goes well. So it's a fascinating um, project. People love this and they think it's a neat idea. I've always been rather a sceptic uh, about the intersection of art and science, often. You know, we've seen musicians down to record ice breaking up in Antarctica and they come back with some concerto <laughs> and I think, bugger off. Yeah, think yeah. one up yourself. <laughs> I don't really know the worth of it. This artist has stuck something up in space and says, oh, it's going to get people to look up. As if there aren't reasons enough without your junk up there. That's right. I, I, I don't, follow, this guy I don't with a knife. follow the logic of it. He, he's uh, associated with the Nevada Museum of Art, if that's any indication. But, I mean, this is a project that he's been working on. It's been launched now, uh, as of a few days ago, into orbit. So it went up as one of these little cube sets mm -hmm. that once it got launched out, it could then sort of... Exp it was just a, like a very uh, fine... I guess Kevlar or something like that, all crushed into this little compact tiny satellite. Mm. Once it got out there, it then blew it out and expanded, filled itself up with some gas. Um, and it's about 30 metres long, yeah. cigar-shaped, about one and a half metres across. It's in a, an orbit. I uh, haven't seen the actual orbital period yet, but they will be posted in due course. Right. Um, and it's going to be better seen from the southern hemisphere. It'll just look like any other satellite. Uh, the fact that it's an unusual shape, that is long and elongated uh, shape, means that it'll probably change brightness as it goes across the sky. That's mm. one thing. But apart from that, I mean, it's no different to thousands and thousands of other satellites. It'll be about as bright as the third brightest star in the Southern Cross. And it'll just truck across the sky. I mean, we've seen this, you know, satellites going across. There's a lot of them up there, and you know, we can hardly take an image of the sky without a satellite trail going wow. across the image at some point. I mean, they don't affect us scientifically, but people want interesting artistic pictures uh, of star fields. They, um, you know, they, they can be quite annoying. So, yeah, I totally agree. I don't know why you need encouragement to look up. There's so much to see in the sky. Sculpture um, in the sky. With your eye or with binoculars or anything else. Yeah. This is the thing. It's bad science and it's worse art. Yes, and it's also, there's a possibility, I mean, it's probably a remote possibility because it's only going to be up there for a few months before its orbit decays. You know, it's possible that it's, it's just adding to the space junk problem, which yeah. is a serious existential issue to um, humanity, actually, because, you know, if you end up with too much space junk and we can't use space because the danger of being hit by something's too great, yeah. then, uh, you know, we're going to be kind of stuck here.
Well, I think it's clear how much rubbish the art is too, because if it was really good art, it'd be down here, so we can have a look at it close up. So he's, <laughs> he's, he's just leaning on the fact of where it's put. Yeah, or well, maybe he's selling the replicas at the museum. What's his name? What's his email? What's his home phone number? Where... Trevor Paglin, his name Trevor is. Trevor Bloody Paglin. And he, he is, Expect a call. And it's called. It's it's. This is unbelievable. It we called this orbital reflector. Oh, great. So well, when we finally nail him and the hammer comes down in court, the sentence will be, you must wear a sandwich board around town saying, I foolishly put something up into space for no reason. Ask me why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just for a week. That would be satisfying. Okay. We'll leave him alone now. <laughs> Gravitational wave observatories. Four more black hole collisions. This connects with the merging black hole thing. Yeah, this is uh, so. This is the uh, two gravitational wave laboratories. One in Italy, one in, uh, and two of them in the United States. So mm -hmm. now they've got three get operating. And when they announced the discoveries last year, those were the ones they were announcing that were absolutely certain. There was no question about it. You could do all the sums pretty quickly, and uh, they were unquestioned. Mm -hmm. They didn't publicise the fact that they also had recorded other events that were made. And now they've had a chance to analyse all the data in detail. They've gone through and they've actually added to the list of um, ones that are very oh, probable. They can confirm but, retrospectively. Yes, they, they know. And there's a couple that are sort of still, and there's a few more that are still sort of just outside the uh, the limit, but they're, they're continuing to analyse. Right. Um, they're going to be firing up these uh, two, um, th this experiment again in, uh, I think it's in March... April, uh, and it's going to be, you know, running with much higher sensitivity. They're going to be finding a lot of these mergers, and so much get a much better idea of a how many of these things are out there, and you know how do they form. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the big mysteries. When they when we first found this, the, the first clear one of a merger, which was a two black holes about 30 times the mass of the sun that merged, uh, you know how do black holes of that mass even form and so this had theorists sort of pulling out their notebooks and sort of doing a sort of analysis to try to work it out and they have got a pretty good understanding now there were whole bits of the evolution of massive stars that had been kind of missed or glossed over mm -hmm. once they actually had a clear example of it the sort of the physics came in to fill in and uh, improve our understanding but so one of the ones that's been detected is uh, even more massive than those that one that pair that were 30 times the mass of the sun each this one was a 50 mass solar mass one and a 30 solar mass one producing a, about right. an 80 mass black hole, 80 solar mass black hole at the end of it. That, so the, the fact that one of those components was 50 times the mass of the sun as a black hole when it went in means that as a star it probably had to be 200, 300 times the mass of the sun when it formed and it lost a lot of its mass just sort of throwing off explosions mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, but what actually ended up in the star at the end was only the sort of a fraction of what it had. But, you know, we don't really know how stars as massive as that can even form. I mean, that, that's still right. an unfinished piece of science. Well, this unknown, I suppose, rather big surprise that we don't know a lot about star types and that there might be a lot more types of stars and, and evolution of them than previously known. What about the Type 1A supernova, which yeah. has been used to calibrate everything? Could that be wrong? 
possibly not wrong, but there's just lots of other examples. For example, there was a big conference here in Auckland at the end of uh, 2016 about mass, uh, the lives and deaths of massive stars, and all the experts in the world came to that. And I was, you know, went along. I'm not an expert in this, but I, because I was in Auckland, I attended that. And the thing that struck me was how complicated it is. We talk about supernovae, but there's a whole family of different routes in which you can produce a star, make a star explode like a supernova. And it's these ex supernova explosions that ultimately explain these black holes. So there's a, just a, a, a labyrinthine diagram showing mm. all the different ways that these massive stars... And if you looked at that a couple of years, uh, you know, like a, de a decade ago, there would have been a, a very simple diagram and it would have been, a, you know, read it on Wikipedia, you'd understand most of what it was about. Now it's a lot more complicated and they find, as the telescopes have got better, they can find more and more of these examples. They've got the Hubble, they've got all these other big instruments in Chile and so on. So they can actually identify a lot of these events. I mean, we, we've talked before about how many supernova are being observed now mm. just because we've got cameras that can monitor this whole sky all night to very faint limits. Right. And so supernovas are being found in very large numbers and these it's supernovas that produce these black holes. Mm. It's, a, it's a lot more complicated, messy picture than anyone would have thought. But the Type 1A supernova, it's, they're supposed to have one brightness. They all have one yeah. brightness so you can measure how far away you are by measuring its brightness. Could that be wrong? Yes, because we don't really understand the physics of the interior of these objects. That's right. the other thing. So okay. the idea of the Type 1A supernova like peas in a pod is not so. Okay. And it's uh, leading to a more complicated thing. How much impact that has on the estimates of the expansion rate of the universe, I couldn't really comment about that. Prehistoric cave art. Um, ancient peoples had much better look at the sky at night than we do and were far more intricately involved in it. But does this cave art, does it reflect what's in the sky? So that's the question. I mean, I thought this was an intriguing story. I'm interested in human prehistory and so on. And uh, this is sort of stretching back sort of 40,000 years some of, the, some of these sites that they've been studying. Basically, in, in a nutshell, what they're saying is that, you know, when you see these sort of drawings and sort of schematics of clearly animals on cave walls, the first thing you'd get the impression of, it's like having a scribble pad and you've just done drawings. Uh, what these um, anthropologists are, are sort of saying is that the, it's not that simple. That, uh, that They're saying these pictures are actually telling a story uh, and they claim to be able to uh, relate them, to the pictures of these animals, to particular patterns in the sky. I mean, mm -hmm. we know about Ursa Major, the Great Bear in the Northern Hemisphere, the constellation. Um, perhaps they were, you know, when they were drawing a bear or an antelope or something, they were relating it to particular groups of stars in the sky. And mm -hmm. so they're actually watching the sky and drawing essentially a map. Now, because you can calculate back and say what stars were visible in a particular way, you can actually, not just night to night, but actually... The, they change over periods of tens of thousands of years, you can actually come up with sort of dates of when these people were drawing these early diagrams. Mm -hmm. Some of these things they've, they interpret, the, uh, the authors of this work um, have uh, interpreted them as um, indicating that they were re recording a cataclysmic event like a meteorite or a comet impact, which clearly would be sort of earth-shattering to people who either knew, witnessed it 
firsthand or it was communicated mm. down through stories and myths yep. and they were chiselling them on the walls of caves. You know, it's a bit like the story of the Great Flood and other sort of cataclysmic events that possibly had actual sort of historical precedence. But are these animals representing constellations? Well, I haven't seen their diagrams right. and seen how strength of that. They've looked at a whole bunch of these famous cave drawings in all sorts of different parts of the world at different times and they believe that their theory holds up. It's just a friggin' antelope. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're making a big call. Uh, they also claim that from the studies of this artwork and uh, from pre these prehistoric sites is that they, these people were aware of the fact that the Earth's rotation changes. It's called precession. Oh, right. Uh, so the at the moment, the Earth's rotating. It's tilted over at 23 degrees roughly to the orbital plane. Everyone probably knows about that. Mm. But the fact that that where that is pointing in the sky rotates with a period of 26,000 years. And the Greeks are the ones who are credited with the first understanding of procession. Well. procession. And it changes the look of the sky. Right. For example, you know, it's sort of around about sort of uh, 0 or uh, 1 AD or so, Roman times in uh, Palestine, then uh, you could actually see the Southern Cross oh. above the horizon, uh, but the skies change. And so astronomers have known about this for a long time and correct for it all, you know, when they're working yeah. out where stars are and so on and when they rise and set. But that's a long period cycle, 26,000 years. The Egyptians, when you're working out stuff to do with the Egyptian pyramids, which are like four or 5,000 years ago, mm. you have to correct for that in order to figure out what star they're pointing at. Oh, Polaris, see. the northern pole star, wasn't always sitting on the no. the pole. It was off to the well off in Egyptian times. Okay, and finally, atomic clocks and improvement on them is if they didn't keep time quite well enough. They're trying to get better. Yes, they're now down to one part in a billion billionth. Right. One in a billion billion. That's 10 to the power of 18. or eight, 10 to the power of ridiculous. Well, 10 to the power of 18, and that's sort of now surpassed cesium clocks, which are used to define this unit of time, the second. Mm. They... Precision is so great that the clocks are sensitive to the fact that they're, they're sensitive to the force of gravity. So that uh, the stronger the field of gravity, the more you get a, um, a basically a red shift of the the uh, mm -hmm. light in, the, in these atoms. And time goes slower, the stronger your gravity is. So you yeah. can actually measure all sorts of things about the structure of the Earth from just measuring the time ah. and then change in time. And when they start propagating these new atomic clocks around the world, they'll get much better picture of things. They'll be able to actually detect gravity waves, which is what these big experiments we've just been talking about right. do currently at huge expense. But in fact, a satellite with a whole bunch of these clocks all around the Earth, uh, you'll be able to tell a great deal about what's going on. That's a clever thing. And so it went from cesium to what? The yttrium. Yttrium. Yttrium, is it oh, I'm not sure how they pronounce it. I've always been a yttrium man. This is a red but, letter day. But, you know, that, so they can measure with high precision down to a, in the order of a centimetre on the surface of the Earth. Now, radio interferometry, which is a whole bunch of radio telescopes all looking at so like a quasar or, or a pulsar, mm. they can measure the position of to, on Earth to within about three centimetres. So this is three times better than that. For example, it's the radio telescopes up at Walkworth are part of a global network of telescopes that do geodesy. They're not only looking out into space, they can be used to measure the change in the continental drift of like how far New Zealand's moving. 
moving. Right. I mean, they can. The, the astronomers up there can tell you that Walkworth is moving at a certain direction uh, on the Earth uh, <laughs> relative to Japan and all these other places. Right. So you can actually measure the deformation of the Earth that's taking place. Well. But to measure absolutely where you are on Earth to within one centimetre is you know, much better than GPS. Yeah, I see. Grant, thank you very, very much. And we shall see you next week. That will be the final of the Weekend Variety Wireless Saturday edition. Yeah, look forward to it. New sport and weather coming your way at the speed of light. And in the next hour, Max Cryer, James Crute on the life and works of Jeff Murphy, as well as the new Michael Moore film. And a little salute to John Lennon. Died this day, 1980.